Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Back on Catch and Shoot after what was called the best of Catch and Shoot. I'm kind of calling it the so far so good episode (laughs) of Catch and Shoot. Because, yeah, I mean, it was good. and, And so far it's been pretty good. We've had on... Broadcasters Tom McGinnis from the Sixers Radio, David Locke from Jazz Radio, Mike Breen and Mark Jones from Television. We've had Will Purdue, mm-hmm. Todd McCulloch, Larry Brown, B.J. Armstrong, John Barry, Rick Barry, Howie Schwab, Quinn Buckner. So many. So go back and take a look at the archives, as all the interviews pretty much are evergreen. You can check out those interviews as well. And we're going to start publishing, continuing to publish just the interview portion as well. I'm Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast of New York City and making his annual trip to the East Coast in Saratoga Springs. He's playing the ponies. Adam Stanko. Good va- good uh, family vacation, pal? It's been it's been great. It's been great, Noah. It's weird. We're, we're in the same state and we're still not going to be able to... Uh to yeah. link up i but, checked uh, uh, i checked train schedules and then but with my work schedule it just wasn't going to listen happen. you're a, you're a busy guy you you've got to clean chalk off the uh sidewalk the yeah you know yeah, off, off, the, the off the roof of your building i i um yeah i mean i'm enjoying the trip my family's big into horse racing huge horse racing family my my younger brother uh made a ton of money this past weekend um, yeah. And we, you know, we have some roots. My, my, my dad had, um, has, was owner of the 2013 Kentucky Oaks winner, Princess of Silmar, um, big point of pride for our family. He grew up going to the track in, in Saratoga since he was eight years old. And his whole dream was to get, uh, his, his colors painted on a, on a lawn jockey, which they give if you win a grade one race during the Saratoga meet the year prior. And uh, the year Princess of Silmar had her great run in 2013 after winning the Oaks, she won two grade one races at Saratoga. So you actually got two of them. So we'd come to the track and, you know, pose pictures with this little lawn jockey. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But so we're sort of. So when you go back to when you go back to the Mm -hmm. track now every year, are you treated as royalty? No, well, no. But, you know, what's what's interesting is my dad sort of became in this this like final act of his life like you know he's had a successful career in business and this is not his 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 uh life's work he just grew up going to the track loving it and then he got into some syndicates owning it and then princess was the first horse he had bred and and um 
she was this crazy good at one point, number two in the country horse, you know, higher than the horse that won the Kentucky Derby that year or, but he sort of became this like mini celebrity in the, in the horse racing world. And he was asked to be a guest on podcasts and he's been on radio shows and on, did a ton of TV interviews. And he grew up in Schenectady, New York, which is down the road from, from Saratoga. So, you know, for him, he was in all the local newspapers, the Albany Times Union and all this stuff. So it was actually this crazy great moment. And, and probably the best day of my life was after Princess won the, the Oaks in 2013. He rushed the whole family down. Um, we all went, there was a group of about 15 of us. We, we go down to the infield. Bob Costas is there, interviews hmm. my dad for NBC hmm. Sports. Um, the incredible we're on the infield there's a hundred thousand people on that friday the day before the derby the oaks is the top three-year-old fillies in the country and she was a 38 to one long shot so top 10 on sports center that night all these crazy things had happened and um after the race they then have a press conference todd pletcher's the trainer mike smith was the jockey and my dad was was up there on the podium with them and he brought up my two daughters and my uh, daughter Bella at the time was having her seventh birthday and uh, 2013 and, and, and they like had them up there and they announced who the jockey trainer and owner are. And then they say, and he's got his granddaughters here, Avery and Bella. And the, one of you has a birthday, which one? And she's like me. And it's it, that moment. And I'm sitting there amongst 40 or 50 members of the press uh, just watching my dad and my daughters That's give awesome. a press conference was like, that was heaven. I, I will never surpass that moment for sure. All right. So what's been what's been the highlight of this trip? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I went to Lake Placid for a few days, which is always a good time. Don't know if you can I've get up been. there and, and unplug. But um, yeah, so we, we had some fun. We, we were out on the lake and um, yeah, we, we've had a great time. And it's been kind of weird to sort of no basketball news really in the past week so it, to be able to uh kind of get away has been has been cool um but uh just spending time with family and and the kids and uh my little man is too now he's running around it's just it's just been good to see a whole bunch of people and good family friends and all that kind of stuff and so we're not royalty when we get back to the track but we do know a lot of people around and uh i like to see my dad in his his happy place yeah. you know <laughs> put it that yeah, I'd way like, i'd like to get up to lake blast i've never been i know i mean Certainly know a few Boston University guys who've had some success up in Lake Placid, but I've never, yeah, but I've never been there. I'd All like right, to get, well, I'd like to, I'd like to get up there at next some point. Next year, next year. We're going to have your buddy TJ Adeshola on the program shortly. He's the head of U.S. Sports Partnerships for Twitter. We're going to talk about NBA Twitter, which has <laughs> certainly become a phenomenon. We're going to do that. But there is a bit of NBA news we'll get to, so... Let's do that in the spread. Time to hit the spread. So NBA.com, Adam, did the all-decade team for the NBA. So it's first, second, and third team, regardless of position, the all-decade team. So starting with the 2009-2010 season through this past season, 18-19. I'm going to go through the list. And I'll let you know what my initial reaction was. And I want to get your, what your initial reaction was before looking into numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So first team, Steph Harden, LeBron, KD, Kawhi. I couldn't argue with. 
And sure, are, are Kawhi's all-NBA teams much lower than all the other guys? Yes, but two finals MVPs and one of the best defensive players in the league, if not the best, then can't argue with it. Second team, Chris Paul, Russ, AD, Blake, and Carmelo. Now, my eyebrows went up when I saw Blake. Yep. But we'll get to that in a moment. All-decade third team, Dwayne Wade, Paul George, LaMarcus Aldridge, Kobe, and again, this is not a career thing. It's just this decade, and Giannis, which had me raising my eyebrows. So my first thought was of guys that were missing. Right. I had three. I had three thoughts immediately. Dirk. Yep. Because he because he was a Finals yep. MVP in eleven. Yep. Yep. Clay. Like if you're gonna have if the heat, if the, the not the heat the the Warriors are the team of the decade, then it can't just be it can't just be Steph on these teams, and Dwight Howard. Because I thought about them getting to the finals in 2010, and I thought, well, he's got to have at least a few All-NBA selections this decade. And then when I looked at it, he had five All-NBA selections. And he was runner-up MVP one year, fourth in MVP one year, seventh in MVP one year, and a two-time Defensive Player of the Year. Clay has been to two All-NBA teams and five All-Star teams, and he's one of the best defensive players in the league. And then Dirk's a three-time All-NBA guy this decade, and a finals MVP. So Giannis, like why would, is it, they want to like make a splash and just reward. And this, again, this is an NBA.com editorial thing. This is not an official league thing. They want to like make a splash to have Giannis on there and not Dirk because Giannis has done it more recently. I think Dirk should be on there over Giannis. Well, here's, here's the interesting thing as I start to go through, because first of all, you have to go, what are you, what are you basing these lists on? That's always my my first question, because if you go, for instance, if you're if you are rewarding someone who played for the entire decade and had their prime during this decade, then it gets really tricky because Giannis really only had the back half of the decade, right? He wasn't even a part of the first half and then and then really didn't get into becoming Giannis until the second half. But at the same time, you then say, well, OK, but. He's also an MVP winner. And so you look at who the MVP guys are during the decade. Obviously, LeBron during that stretch, three MVPs, Steph two, one unanimous, uh, Kevin Durant, Westbrook, Harden, and Derrick Rose gets an MVP. But obviously, we know what, what happened to some of Derrick Rose's career as well. Um, so I think the MVP thing maybe is what is what puts Giannis in that discussion. Dwight was interesting i went as i was going through i had the same thought noah that dwight sort of become the guy that the nba doesn't want to talk about and certainly nba twitter doesn't want to talk about um a controversial figure for many reasons um but when you talk about production and you talk about what he did defensively a defensive player of the year a guy that was automatically best big in the league for a number of years uh, a guy that was considered one of the top MVP candidates. I mean, things sort of started to go downhill with injuries and when he went to the Lakers and, you know, uh, his off the court stuff has, has been brought up a lot. But really, in terms of productivity and for a list like this, a guy that was a dominant player in this stretch, I mean, Dwight Howard is that is that guy. And also for Clay Thompson, 
top two in the decade for three-point field goal percentage during that 10-year stretch. It's him and Steph are the top two, not to mention historical numbers for you know three-point field goals made and how the Steph and Clay have just changed the game. So I'm with you. Those are the guys that, that stood out to me. The other name that I felt like was kind of missing was, was Kyrie. Um, and I don't know whether Kyrie but was one of those names that I said, hmm, what about, you know, Kyrie's run? I mean, all the all-star appearances, wins the NBA title. Um, and again, you know, you just sort of, you, you can say, if we're doing this positionless and uh, you look at the fact that LaMarcus Aldridge is on this team, like, did Kyrie have a better decade than LaMarcus Aldridge? That's, that's sort of how I would kind of view it. Yeah, so I wouldn't have Giannis on, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have Kobe on, and I think Lamarcus or maybe Blake would be the other one I would have off. Although it's tough not to have, you know, it's tough to just to be able to decide between Blake and and Anthony Davis, um, but also what did Carmelo win? But Carmelo is one of the you know, I think he's the second leading scorer in this decade. Right. But I would I would not have I would not have Kobe on this list. And I also don't on the on NBA.com they have all stars, all NBA, and points, rebounds, assist. I don't all all star game appearances is not one of the first, second, third, or fourth things I look at. Yeah. All yeah. NBAs, all NBAs matter a whole lot more than all star appearances. With without a doubt. Without a doubt, there's different ways you can make an all-star game. Um, it and all, no one slips into making an All NBA. Like you right, are like, your like way Kobe, like Kobe, NBA. like Kobe got some of those All-Star game nods because he's Kobe. Right. The and tricky that's, one, and, and that's fine. And that's and, you know, fans want to see it. That's fine. I just don't think it should be held up in some sort of historical context. Right. The tricky one with Kobe is, and I, and I was looking through last night and actually thought when I first saw the list and that these numbers are based upon what guys did starting 2010, 2011, because I didn't realize the list actually started uh, 2009, 2010. But Kobe had from 2010, 2011 season um, on, he did have three first team all NBAs and mm -hmm. three top five MVP finishes. The tricky part is obviously. I mean, his last season was a total wash. And then you figure, so he played half the decade, basically. And so that's... Uh, not even. Not even. But he played four. He had four seasons this decade. Yeah. 9-10 through 12-13. Oh, yeah. There you go. So, um, you know, it, it's... It, and it's, it's tricky when you go back and, and look at some of these. I mean, certainly, if we're talking about anything that has to do, longevity should matter if we're talking about an entire decade and who represents guys from the decade. And I get that that Kobe fans are upset about that. And if we were talking about all-decade team from the 2000s, yes, that's, that's a no-brainer, obviously, Kobe's first team. But when you start to go to 2010 to, 20, you know, the 10s, then, or whatever this decade is referred to as, no, I don't know if there's a name for it, but it's just to me, it's, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that you first look at the list and I think without thinking about how little he played this decade, uh, then of course you say, well, why not Kobe? Um, 
but as you start to dive in and realize, you know, the duration of his career during that stretch. And, and I think the other one that was interesting was you talking about Kawhi, because it does feel like it, when you first see it, like, well, wait, we're prisoner of the moment. Um, by the way, Kobe's final season, 2015, 2016, though. Um, but right, but I'm the, saying, right, right. But, but I'm one saying of those seasons, only, obviously, he was all, out for the year. Right, he then, only really played four seasons. Yes, this yeah, decade. totally, totally, totally. Yeah. But but the Kawhi thing, too, feels like prisoner of the moment until you say, wait a minute, though. Uh, you're talking about, you, you do point out, as you did, the second finals MVP. It wasn't his first finals MVP that he won with Toronto. He's got multiple titles. He's got multiple appearances on first or second All-NBA teams. Um, a couple times in top three MVP voting. So, yes, you see the All-Star Game appearances, and you can knock Kawhi for that. But uh, his productivity in terms of what he did as a defensive player, too, during this, this was his decade. And then the, the other one that's interesting is the Blake thing, because when Blake came in, in a way, it's sort of like the perfect timing for Blake, because they, this hits the absolute apex of his career. Mm-hmm. Some guys come in a little bit before, so they get sort of half the decade is their prime this was entirely in Blake's wheelhouse. And uh, I, while he didn't win a lot of the big games that his contemporaries did, in terms of his productivity, even starting from year one or year two, as in Blake's case, um, it was off the charts. I mean, he was an all-star as a quote-unquote rookie. So, and I know you don't count all-star game appearances that much, but making it as a rookie, certainly his impact was felt immediately in the NBA. Right, and I should say that Dwight, so he got to the Eastern Conference Finals. They lost to the Celtics in 14. He got to the Finals in 09, which wouldn't, which wouldn't count. Which, I mean, if he'd gotten to the Finals then in this decade, then you know, maybe this, that would have put him on this team. But I still think being a two-time Defensive Player of the Year and a five-time All-NBA guy this decade and having two top five finishes in MVP, including a runner-up and then a seventh, I think, I think that should be enough to get you on above – certainly Giannis so pick out pick any of those three guys and put them on over Giannis yeah now so my question to you is though even with the limited amount of appearances how do you weigh an MVP I mean look you it you could weigh it I mean at the time when Derek Rose won his MVP you thought wow this you know he's headed for the Hall of Fame if Giannis if if Giannis's career, God forbid, goes the way of goes the way of Derrick Rose's right now, he's not he's not making the Hall of Fame. So I, I think I don't think you can look at it. Wow. I, th- I think you have to I think you have to look at it in um for for what it is that it was you know, he, that that one great season. So right. that's how you that's how you look at it at the moment. You know, when you look back on it, you'd say, wow, that was the start of something great. And for Derrick Rose, unfortunately, it wasn't. But that's the exception. And by the way, the Derrick and on the Derrick Rose point, I mean, they changed Derrick Rose's impact this decade was so great in terms of how quickly he won that MVP that they changed how NBA contracts are forever structured. Right. With so, the Rose rule. yeah, with the Rose rule. So it's, you know, pretty that's you bring up a good point. I've good heard point. I've heard something similar with with our contracts here on the program. That things have been things have been so good, yeah. So soon 
that they've had to rip them up and uh, and start over. So we won't oh, be getting that's... contracts. Oh, that's news. Oh, they're just <laughs> they're just ripping them up. That's what just, you mean. Yeah, they're they're complete. just ripping they're, up. There's no up. restructure. It's just they ripped them up. Ripped up. I don't even know if anything was ever written on the paper in the first place, but I just know that papers have been ripped up. That's all I know because of this early on. <laughs> All right, let's get to TJ Adeshola, the head of U.S. Sports Partnerships for Twitter. That was dope. TJ Adeshola is joining us today, the head of U.S. Sports Partnerships for Twitter. TJ, I watched your segment on the jump, and it was 6 minutes and 42 seconds. So I want to know, since Rachel spoke for 5 minutes and 58 seconds, I know... I know that you had more to say, so I want to. So we're going to start this with empty out, empty out your notebook with everything else that you had prepared for the jump that you didn't get to say, and now you can open that. You can open up this podcast with all that stuff. That that is fantastic. What I would say is, it's much cooler to have somebody else talk about how cool the work you do than it is for you to do it. So that is exactly what I wanted. Exactly what I wanted. Uh, that said. Um, I'm CJ to show, as you mentioned, I'm the head of sports at, at Twitter. And um, uh, in the in the previous life, I worked at, at ESPN and was able to forge some of my closest relationships, the relationships that are beyond friendship, their family. And Adam Stanko is obviously one of them. Uh, and, and and here we are. We get to talk about the journey. Yeah. yeah so let, let, let's start with that relationship. And let's start with your relationship with Adam. How did it start? And at what point did you realize that, you know what, this guy is not as bad as everyone says he is? <laughs> well, well, I haven't realized that yet, if we're being, if we're being completely honest. Um, he seems all right, though. He seems all right. So in, in Bristol, Connecticut, as you'd imagine, there wasn't much to do, but we had a really close network of homies who were hoops obsessed. Like, we would either be talking about hoops every day or we'd be playing hoops every day. And, and Stanko was the dude who had an affinity for, for no-look passes. Um, and and he, he had a pretty decent uh, assist-to-turnover ratio. So I remember thinking to myself, like, who's the dude who throws routine passes and turns them into no-looks all the time? It ended up being Adam. Uh, I was an intern at, at ESPN. And he uh, he really just kind of big-brothered me and took me under his wing and showed me showed me the ropes, showed me the sandwiches I should get in the cafeteria, showed me where uh, where I should I should hang out, who I should hang out with. And he really just kind of uh helped set my my career in a way that I don't think would 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 have played out had it not been for his uh his input, man. So he's been somebody I've been very thankful and and uh lucky to have in my life. Man, this this wow. TJ always knows the right thing to say. You know, this is yeah, why right. you see why he's so this successful. Fest, this love fest started yeah. early. We're gonna, we're gonna end it right now. We're gonna end it right now. No, you know what's uh, so what's interesting is so that's the 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 TJ side of this, but my side of this is that I mean TJ started at ESPN. I mean he is uh, such a motivational story, I think, for so many people because he started at ESPN as an intern when I was already there, and TJ came in with this this great intern class. Uh, really talented people that that joined him, but like he stood out. And I just remember TJ just grinding and putting in the work and then networking like crazy. And I mean, TJ can speak to this, but the idea was he came in, came from Georgia, 
he was this guy that just wanted to get to know people and anyone who knows him and you already probably can sense it, but just such a charismatic guy, such a bright guy. And he walked in right away to ESPN and was an intern and just not only did the work during the day, but then was trying to meet with people during lunch breaks, after work, all this. And so my first, you know, getting to know TJ was here he is as an intern at ESPN, but then he's also working nights at, at Banana Republic and grinding away there. And he's always the, the best dressed guy in the room. So TJ is doing all this stuff and you just knew that his future was bright. I never realized the ascension would be as quick as it was to now where he's the guy at Twitter. When you want to blame something you read on NBA Twitter, TJ is the guy you blame it on. If you, if you want a blue check mark, TJ's the guy you blame. No, no. But like, Damn, but TJ, damn, but damn, no, damn. TJ has met with so many influential people and done so much for Twitter as as a brand, as a company. And there there was no doubt in my mind that TJ would be a major success at whatever he chose to do. Uh, and now he's I mean, he's changing how we view sports through social media. I mean, he he is the guy that that's changing all that. And so I guess my my after saying all that, TJ, I just wanted to to bring up when when you're an intern at ESPN what was your ultimate goal because at that time obviously becoming the head of sports partnerships at Twitter didn't seem like it was something that that even existed really as a, as a position that someone could get to yeah it, it, it's crazy that you uh, bring that up because when I talk to to college students and, and folks who aspire to be in the sports industry now they're like how did you get your job and I'm like crazy is or the crazy thing is, excuse me, is uh, my yeah, role didn't. Am I allowed to cuss? Is that yeah. Cool? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, what's crazy is my role didn't exist while I was at school, or while I was at ESPN interning, or even while I was at ESPN. So um, it, it, some of it has been the stars aligning and serendipity, but um, a lot of it has been just really trying to to be a student of the game and be a nerd and, and align myself with where I think the industry is going. So um, as you mentioned, like while I was at ESPN, I think most people go to ESPN, especially out of college thinking I'm going to finesse this to be on camera or to get some type of front facing role somehow, some way, like more often than not, especially if you're on the production side, that is um, that is a, a goal of yours in some form or fashion. Uh, I quickly realized that that wasn't going to happen for me because I wasn't necessarily in, in television production. I was on the audio side originally. But what I was able to do was develop relationships with folks who were on the TV side, on the production side. Uh, and Stanko, you and I talked about having a podcast or a show before mm -hmm. podcasts were even popping. Like we would be we would be it right now. We would have the <laughs> ringer and Grandland and all that. I blame you for that. Um, yeah. No, we Fair. didn't do that, Fair. but I, uh, I I developed a real strong affinity for the business of sports. Like I, I realized that it, it, ESPN was called the worldwide leader for a reason, and I wanted to learn why. I wanted to learn how it was so profitable and, and how they they created their multi-year deals with, with rights holders. So started getting really interested in that, and around the same time, digital really started to, to take off. We we had a property at ESPN called, I think it started as ESPN 360, then evolved to ESPN 3. It's now Watch ESPN. Um, and I transitioned over to the digital side of the house and really got to learn firsthand 
um, how to, to, to go about uh, developing uh, a business of sports on the digital side. And the rest is kind of history. I transitioned over to Twitter and, and we realized that it was a, a microphone to the world and it was the perfect complement to the live sports consumption experience. So we really wanted to, to fuel that and create what I often call a, 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 a virtual sports bar, right? Like if you're watching a game, what does it look like or what does it feel like to be chatting with your homies or chatting with people who are watching the same thing live in real time? And we've been able to, to capture that in a really cool way. So, um, again, a lot of it has been happenstance, but uh, most of it has been just my my willingness to, to, to be aware and to understand um, what's new within within the sports landscape. TJ, what's your role then in, I, I, I should say, shaping the NBA conversation on Twitter if so much of it is reacting to what players are saying and what is going on during games? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, the the superpower of Twitter is that this conversation occurs organically, right? So if I'm having to text people or email people or ping people on the side to tweet, then I'm not necessarily doing something that's scalable. So for us, it's really just ensuring that that experience within Twitter uh, is uh, filled with the most rich content as possible. So that means having discussions with the NBA about uh, publishing real-time highlights to Twitter. It means talking to uh, the ringer and Pat Modani over there about how to best uh, equip them with the tools and resources to, to publish NBA desktop on Twitter live, right? So um, for, for, for me, it's really ensuring that if you are going to hop on Twitter while you're watching a game or immediately after or before a game, that there's really rich content for you to consume that will help you contextualize the game that you're thinking about or the game that you're watching or, or your favorite player, why he does what he does, who hit the game winning shot. Like that content is published to Twitter in real time often. Uh, and the content is rich and robust. So uh, it's less about uh, me uh, poking people to tweet and more about me equipping uh, our sports publishers and, and sports partners in the landscape with tools to, to leverage Twitter as a, as a valuable distribution platform for them. So then how, how does it work financially? Like how does the NBA make money off Twitter and how does Twitter make money off the NBA? Oh, you're asking the, the deep and meaningful questions, huh? You asked them about the secret sauce, baby. We will get, we, right. we can talk um, about getting the 70% off Banana <laughs> Republic and, you know, later on, but I've got to talk I, about I, this. I, I, I I actually I feel like I owe Banana Republic money, so I'd prefer to, <laughs> to, not, to not talk hey, about that. Hey, if you're that. paying full price there, you're a sucker. <laughs> but um, and, and, and Stanko, you don't have to laugh that hard. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah, no if kidding. you know, you know. You know I know. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, so the 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 revenue partnerships are are structured um, very differently relative to each property right like so what's a good example so nba for example the nba has a joint venture with turner nba digital uh, so when we have conversations with the nba about nba live programming and nba monetization on social those conversations often include turner uh, because turner plays a very vital role 
in uh, managing and executing some of those NBA digital assets. So it, you think about the NBA's official marketing partners. You've got State Farm, right, the State Farm Assist. You've got American Express. You've got uh, Nike. Those are, are partners that the NBA creates sponsorship elements for. And because the NBA has an owned and operated channel on Twitter, they can leverage that channel that we equip them with to extend monetization and sponsorship opportunities. So in many cases, it's us meeting together saying, okay, this is the type of content that we think will perform well on Twitter that you should publish. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll collaboratively approach the marketplace and identify sponsors who make sense to travel alongside that uh, that premium NBA content. So it varies from league to league and from property to property. You can imagine some leagues have restrictions with how they can monetize. Uh, some properties have restrictions with uh, the, the types of content that they can that they can monetize. So it, it gets pretty nuanced, but that should come as no surprise, right? Like sports rights as a whole are super complex, super intricate, and super nuanced. Sometimes you're dealing with an actual rights holder in the traditional sense, like a league, right? Like the NBA or the NFL or MLB. But then sometimes you're dealing with a broadcast network that may not be the actual league property, but they have rights that they've acquired by way of the league, i.e. ESPN with Monday Night Football, their relationship with the NFL. So it varies wildly, but, but know that it's a conversation that we both collectively come to the table and say, how can we monetize these rights that you have? What are the restrictions? What are the limitations? And then we figure it out. So, I mean, Twitter's figured out how to make money, essentially, right? I mean, that's yeah, that's yeah, we're profitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, that's we're what you're getting at. Because people have always were wondering about that for for a long time. And and as you bring up, like there are different ways. It's not just the obvious to the to the everyday user of Twitter. Which, which gets to something that I wanted to ask you, which is I think you are as connected to the streets, shall we say, as any executive <laughs> that I've ever come across. No, I'm, I'm, but I'm being serious in terms of, of what's interesting, in terms of what people are talking about. Like, you're, you're not one of these guys that's gotten away from, from what's interesting to you. You're still going to be on text chains. I'm, I'm curious, how do you... How do you bring what you're hearing from your friends into, you know, the 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 corporate boardroom? Man, that's a it's a really good question. I I'm fortunate to work for a property that, whether or not um, I have anything to do with it or not, those conversations are going to occur on, on Twitter, right? Like people are excited about whether. LeBron drops a triple-double and the Lakers get a W, That that is a, a massive part of the conversation. But what has almost become equally massive is, yo, LeBron just dropped a new shoe, Pete the Colorway. Yo, LeBron is wearing these Fear of God shoes to the game, or he's wearing these really cool Versace Kiss Combo shorts, right? Like, those, those conversations are as uh, engaged on the platform as is the amount of points that a player scores on a given night. So it, I don't have to 
it's not much of a struggle for me to have those conversations internally because I can point to Twitter. I can say, yo, this is what people are talking about, and we need to make sure that we are enhancing these conversations. We need to make sure that we are shining a light on these conversations because this is what people want to consume. People are hyper obsessive about culture and lifestyle discussions. How can we work with partners to ensure that if they're looking to talk about culture and lifestyle around basketball or around sports, that those uh, that those conversations are, are taking place on Twitter. And fortunately for me, I happen to have an affinity for for that type of stuff. Like I love I love the the lifestyle around sport. I love the culture around sports. So uh, I've been able to to align myself with folks who who care about it just as much, if not more, than I do. Uh, and fortunately, I I'm sitting on a, a distribution platform that that helps people build brands and helps people build interest and engagement and awareness and eyeballs. So uh, I've been fortunate to, to sit at that intersection and to be passionate about it. So where in the office are the statues of World Wide Web and, and Omar? <laughs> or, or, is that, or are those in your <laughs> They uh, I, if I if I if I told you uh, I'd, I'd have to make you sign an NDA, right? So those are those are unfortunately conversations that we can't disclose publicly. But know that uh, know that those are the homies, and and uh, they hold a special place on the on the sports Twitter Mount Rushmore. Well, so so here's here's <laughs> here's what I think. So my my question always is is what's next? Like Omar mm. and House highlights, they just you know they they curate highlights, and now people send them highlights, and they push them out. Rob or Worldwide Wob does a good job of. Uh, you know, a lot of people can just see things that happen on the screen, but it's the the synchronization of players when they do things at the same time, and it's the oddities. It's the oddities that that get eyeballs. What's next, or what are you what are you searching for that's next? Yeah, I, I would take a step back. You mentioned something that's fascinating. Um, I think people underestimate. Like, let's let's think of a guy like Wob, right, and um, what he's been able to build on Twitter is super special. Uh, and there's really nobody like him. And Josiah Johnson's another example, King Josiah, who's who's done fantastic work on the platform. But these guys create and amplify moments on the platform. And it's not easy. Like, they're not just, uh, they're not just making up uh, a tweet and publishing it in real time without any additional work. I mean, the the idea of identifying something happening in sync and then creating the video that showcases exactly how that happens with context in real time within the game window, that is really, really, really difficult to do. I, I've, I've been at a basketball game with, with Wob before, and my man had his laptop out there, headphones on, and was his face was two inches away from the screen, like he was locked in. Yeah, that's uh, not because, Yeah, it, it requires work. It requires work, but you don't do that unless you have a genuine love for the game, and he does that. Josiah Johnson is uh, another one who um, is, is is really taking memes to a whole nother level. He he created a uh, uh, this um, AD is coming to LA jingle that was a riff off of. 
uh, an NWA Ice Cube record, and it does numbers on 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 social. So I say all that to say, like the the work that some of these folks are doing on the platform is not easy. Like these guys are really, really, really skilled, uh, and it's it's dope to see that when they pour that much effort into something that the content resonates on on the platform. So you ask me what's next uh, for us it's it's really really simple like I, we have to be we have to hone in on the strategy that we feel like makes sense for the platform and and, and one of the advantages we have <laughs> working at twitter is if if if, if something sucks people are gonna be like yo this is trash dog you'll see it in the timeline but if they like it they'll be like yo that's actually really cool i'd like to see more of that so we have access to, you could call it maybe the largest real-time interest graph in the world, right? Like people will tell us if things are cool, if things aren't cool, we learn in real time. So we've been able to test and learn different things based on just seeing the reaction of, of sports fans on the timeline. So something that we're really excited about is as is finding ways to deepen engagement with existing sports franchises. And what I mean by that is, we'll take MLB for an example. So last year we had live MLB games on Twitter. It was cool. They were locally blacked out due to rights restrictions. You guys are familiar with, with what that looks like as a, as a sports fan. And it wasn't necessarily the best experience for users. If you're a Yankees fan, you live in New York and you can't watch the game because you, you live in New York, like we're, we're we're excluding a large portion of the population who would actually be really interested in consuming that content. So we decided to revisit that strategy. And what we rolled out this year is a program called MLB Twitter Hitter. At the beginning of each day, Major League Baseball sends out a tweet and they give the timeline four options. They say, we've got a full slate of games today. Who do you want to see have all of their live at bats on Twitter? It'll be, Trout, Guerrero, Aaron Judge, uh, Giancarlo. Um, and before the game or at the end of the day, midway through the day, um, the results of the Twitter poll will come in and then MLB will live stream each and every at-bat of the person who won the vote. So Vlad Guerrero, for example, during the Home Run Derby, Vladimir Guerrero won it. Every single at-bat that he had, um, was live streamed on Twitter. So that's something that occurs that occurs every day, the MLB Twitter hitter. We have a partnership with PGA Tour, which is eerily similar in that we allow users to vote on um, the golfer that they want to see early round coverage of. With NBA Twitter Live is also a franchise we have where we have the second half of, of games, select games from that are produced by Turner. And we'll say, hey, guys, this is the matchup for the night. Here are four players. Pick the player that you want to see a live ISO cam of during the second half. And what we see is this is a process that allows us to incentivize users to stick around and consume content on the platform. So really just trying to deepen engagement and trying to reward users for being active on the platform and, and provide them with sticky content that will hopefully allow them to stick around on Twitter long, share it amongst their, their followings, and get other people on. So. Those are the types of things we're trying to play with as uh, as the sports digital shit evolves. So, TJ, 
I've I've been curious about how Twitter has evolved in terms of who uh, has made a name for themselves on the platform. I mean, we talked about you know Rob Perez a moment ago, but but just in general, when Twitter was was first starting out, it was if you were interesting or funny, like you could then make a name for yourself. Now, if you're interesting, that's that's great. But there are a bunch of interesting people because guess what? Every reality star is on Twitter. There's a bunch of funny mm-hmm. people because every comedian's on Twitter. So harder for those guys to stand out. So I guess my question to you, being on the inside, what are some of the mistakes that people make on Twitter using it as as a platform to maybe increase their brand or you know what they're selling or or what they're trying to promote? What are some of the mistakes that people make? that that are crushing them and crushing their attempt at getting more followers yeah i i one is is kind of what i alluded to a few moments ago like people on twitter are very keen on authenticity and if you if you appear to be fake or appear to be inauthentic or you publish content that people are like man that's trash they'll let you let you know about it and that's always a no-no. Um, what what works really well on the platform is why someone like Chrissy Teigen is kick-ass on Twitter. She's truly and authentically her whole self on the platform. If she just ate a few donuts, she's going to be like, yo, I ate a bunch of donuts. Don't judge me, right? And it resonates really well with people on the platform. It's why you've seen uh, uh, a series of memes in a marketing campaign around me on twitter versus me on instagram right like you on twitter may may be disheveled with a a vintage t-shirt on whereas you on instagram may have a filter and no blemishes and a three-piece suit on right so that that we 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 realize that there are very distinct differences between our platforms which is fine and which is why people use each of our platforms in in different ways Um, another thing that is is interesting that people do in an effort to be um, more efficient like sometimes they'll publish third-party links to to twitter and what happens i.e if you are to share um, an instagram post to twitter using that functionality that exists within instagram it'll publish twitter but it won't render the media it won't render the image Mm -hmm. so when you're scrolling through a twitter timeline it'll say uh it'll show a portion of your caption and it'll show an instagram link uh, and that function unfortunately doesn't render the media so it it feels like a bit of a broken experience as opposed to the user just uploading that video or that picture natively i tell athletes all the time i'm like man i know it's easy to press that button but if you want to drive engagements and you want to sustain your following just upload the media natively to twitter so when they come to your profile they come to your handle they'll get a rich media consumption experience as opposed to a bunch of links. Uh, So those types of things, right? Like ensuring that you have a consistent publishing strategy, ensuring that you're authentic on the platform, giving users uh, a look under the hood, uh, a bit of uh, uh, your personality that they may not experience anywhere else. Those types of things always work really well on our platform. Some of this stuff exhausting. Like when I see Say Chrissy Teigen, as you mentioned, like posting, mm-hmm. uh, I, I ate four donuts. Don't judge me. Like in my head, I'm like, God, like, isn't it exhausting to constantly be posting? 
it's work, man. And it's why I mentioned Rob and, and Josiah earlier. Like they're really, really good at Twitter, but it, that, that, that doesn't come as at a, that doesn't come without a cause. It requires work. It, it, it requires time and effort. Uh, so to your, to your point, it, it, it can be exhausting. And to that, I would say, do it at your own pace, right? Like do it in a way that feels right for you. Um, now, some people, like relative to Adam's question, it was really about brand building and ensuring that you can use Twitter to uh, develop and sustain a following for yourself. If that is truly your objective, right, if you're using it to build a platform, to build a brand, to, to gain followers, then you're going to have to be willing to do the work. You're going to have to be willing to, 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 to publish the content. Maybe when you don't feel like it sometimes, you're going to have to be willing to upload that, that media natively because the, the, reward, the reward will be there on the other side uh, if you are diligent about it. But um, if, 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 if it's something that feels like a chore, I always advise folks like do it at a pace that feels good for you. Do it in an authentic manner. Do it, do it when, when you feel like it, it feels right. Um, but different strokes for different folks, obviously. Some people are glued to it all day. Some people hop in maybe a couple times a day. Some people hop in a bit more infrequently than that. Uh, but finding your cadence, finding your voice is, is uh, of, of, of the utmost importance for sure. So there's no magic number? No, no, I wouldn't. You know, I I mean, with my Twitter hat on, I would say hop in there and, and, and tweet as much as three times a day or at least consume content on the platform, whether it's 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 hopping in there and, and liking tweets or 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 sharing content uh, amongst your followers. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, um, people use uh people should use the platform the way that it feels good, the way that it works for them. Uh, and for some people that's having their phone on them at all times. And for some people it's maybe hopping in a couple times a day. So I don't think there's a right or wrong way uh, as long as it's authentic to you. And as long as you're gaining value or gleaning value from using the service. You talked about advising athletes and obviously recently you, you just caught up with, um, Giannis Antetokounmpo and you guys um, spoke together, um, and uh, and you did sort of a Q and A with with Giannis. Um, what are some of your your favorite stories of of athletes you've gotten to meet and guys that you've gotten a chance to uh, to help out with the platform? Yeah, man, that's a really good question. Um, I you mentioned Giannis, so I'll I'll, I'll start with him. One of my favorite quote unquote NBA Twitter stories is a few a few years back, I think in twenty seventeen, Kobe Kobe in true Kobe fashion started issuing Twitter challenges, right, to players. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that he issued was to Giannis, he's like, Yo, I want you to be the league MVP. Um and as you can imagine, when when Mamba issues a challenge like that to the world, to you in front of the world, that, that could be, that could be a bit intimidating. So I asked Giannis about it. I was like, yo, you were chilling, man. Like you were minding your own business. And then here comes Kobe tweeting at you saying, I need you to win the league MVP. I said, what was your response? And he said, my response was, 
oh shit because <laughs> he, he knew it was real like at that point he's like okay like i just got challenged by kobe to the world like i gotta put the work in and here we are uh, in 2019 and, and that dude hoisted uh the, the the mvp trophy man it's one of my 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 favorite stories and um and and one that like tells just such a great picture and it shows like the type of guy that the the Giannis the Giannis is um, a few others like a guy like C J McCollum who is fantastic at Twitter um, he has a podcast called the Pull Up uh, so I'm often uh, reaching out to him and his team asking about what would um, what does Twitter look like for you what is the best ways that you use it. Um, and shortly after that, there was a, I'm trying Jennifer a story that happened where, uh, there was a, a young lady on Twitter who, who, who said, yo, you need to focus on, on winning a final or winning a, a playoff series. And his response was super genuine. It was like, yo, Jennifer, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying. And it went viral and it turned into this big thing. There were t-shirts and merch. Uh, and then once they won, uh, once he won his first playoff series, I believe ESPN brought Jennifer to a game uh, in Golden State and they got to meet and they hugged it out and all that type of stuff. So the the beauty of what we do is there are just so many rich stories and examples from athletes, leagues, and teams uh, as to how they've used Twitter and, and, and different cool stories that they have. Um, we could, we could, we could go on and on about this one. So, since you're uh, behind the scenes and you have access to data, the rest of us don't have, um, we need you right now to list off who all the burner accounts are for the high named athletes. Um, what, what has been going on with the, with, with the, with the burner accounts and, and, and do you, are you privy to, to knowing that stuff? So that's key. I like, I, I only have room in my head for a certain amount of information, you know what I mean? Until I reach, until I reach a, a max, max overload up there. I don't get, I don't get any insight into that. And what's interesting is oftentimes the agents that we have relationships with don't know either. Like these, 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 these really, yeah, these athletes are just like us and some things they want to share and some things they don't want to share. And I understand that there's a balance between um, assisting their brand and, and overstepping. So I never, I never get too far deep down that rabbit hole, man. Uh, these 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 cats leverage social in the ways that they want to. They're really savvy though, man. They're they're really savvy. And although we've heard of some burner accounts, imagine all the all the burners that exist that we don't even know of that we're not privy to. These dudes are super savvy and they grew up with with their phones in their hands. So um, they uh, they take it they take it pretty seriously. But I never really overstep. I never I try to respect that. Uh, that privacy that, that, that they have with respect to how they use our platform. You mentioned the, I'm trying Jennifer. Yeah. Do you guys, or do you specifically, or, or anybody on your team alert players of certain tweets? Like maybe they're not checking their mentions and you know that this could create some sort of Twitter moment. That's a fantastic question. And the, the short answer is yes. When when we see things that are bubbling or popping or can turn into a thing on the platform, I have a colleague in, in L.A. Her name is Brittany Cranston. She runs all of our athlete relationships. And 
uh, we'll, we have a DM thread and we'll send tweets to each other all day. Did you see this? Did you see this? Oh, this is going to do numbers. Maybe you should reach out to his or, or her team. So those are, those are things that, that those are discussions that we have every single day. Cause oftentimes like the timeline moves so fast that guys miss things that might be doing numbers or that might be popping. So we, uh, we definitely take ownership in, in, in that, in that capacity. If we see something that, is um, is is performing well. We'll we'll send it over to the teams to make sure that that they know it's uh, that they know it's, it's it's popping. And best case scenario, they hop in, they respond, they engage, they do whatever it is that they feel comfortable with. And in worst case scenario, they'll say thanks and they'll keep it moving. TJ, totally want to switch directions right now and and ask you something I really don't even know much about because we we interacted you coming off you know your college run and, and intern at ESPN that and by the way 2008 was when was when we first linked up to to just show how how quickly TJ's ascension's been and and well deserved obviously but but your childhood I've never really gotten into it with you what what was your childhood like. Wow, memory lane. Is my mama gonna pop up? Is this this is your life, correct? <laughs> mom, you there? I, I would, but we don't have the technology to do that. She's on the line, but it keeps dropping out. So I don't. Oh. Fair enough. Uh, childhood. So I, uh, I'm an only child. Uh, grew up uh, in the the D.C. metro area in Maryland specifically. Moved around a little bit, but um, you know when you're an only child and and. Uh, you, your parents work a lot, or my mom specifically worked a lot. Like sports was my, was sports is what I had. Like sports was the way I was able to build relationships with other folks and and and, and create friendships. Sports was also like what I got home and watched. Right, like I felt like a connection with sports, unlike anything else I've had. So, I've had this this affinity for sports for my entire life, and I, I've always known. That I would work in sports somehow. I just my assumption at a pretty early age was that I wouldn't be directly impacting a box score, right? Like I would, I wouldn't be. You wouldn't be going to ESPN.com to to see what how many points Adeshola scored, right? But I knew that I could impact the game in different ways, and and here we are, just a, a handful of years later. I'm not trying to age myself, uh, and and I actually do have a role that um, that, that 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 assists athletes and leagues and and achieving objectives and 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 reaching new fans and building audiences and whatnot. But yeah, my childhood was very much sports obsessed. I grew up in the D.C. area, like I mentioned. So uh, Georgetown hoops, University of Maryland hoops. The Wizards, which were the Bullets at the time, um, the the Washington Pro Football Team, the 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 Orioles prior to Montreal becoming the Nationals, you know, all things DMV sports, DMV hoops specifically as well. So did you see Steve Francis playing high school? I did, I did. I, we had man, we had a we had a, a solid group of folks coming through. Uh, the DMV. We still kind of like to claim Carmelo, even though he floated up to Baltimore. But we 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 had a, a, a quite a crew. Obviously, uh, you've got the Kevin Durant and the Steve Francis's and, um, and and Mellows and like guys like even folks that are still in the like a Jeff Green is from from the crib. We've got tons of 
of pound for pound, especially during that era, we had quite a few quite a few guys who were making a name for themselves in the prep college and, and pro space. All right, so then given so given all that and you know wanting to work in sports, Adam asked you before about some of the experience that you've had with players and, and their reactions to things, specifically with Giannis. What was your first and what was your most recent oh shit moment for yourself? Ooh, uh, first, a few years ago, we were having exploratory discussions with the, the NFL around Thursday Night Football, and uh, they were shopping those rights around to a digital, a digital property, and uh, shortly after those discussions, they moved really fast, we were able to, to secure the rights of Thursday Night Football on Twitter, so season kicked off and I'll never forget that first Thursday night the Jets were playing like we had live NFL games on Twitter um, that did not require authentication or did not require a payment or a login Uh, that was a pretty cool moment for me and that at which point I'm like oh shit we we're doing stuff that is disruptive like this is new this is the forefront of how sports will be consumed uh, in the future, like on mobile, via 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 platforms like Twitter. So that was that was probably the first career one, like to be to play a role in in what inevitably is like a change in in, in the way people operate at scale. Like I, that was pretty special. The last one, huh? So this I'm on the podcast with Adam Stanko. Yeah, well, obviously, uh, that goes without saying, though. That okay. goes without saying. We right before the uh, the U.S. Women's National Team went off to the World Cup, um, my my colleague Brittany and um, and the USOC had this idea of having their official send off press conference at Twitter. So right before they left, the whole team came here. All media outlets came. And we had the U.S. Women's Soccer National Team press conference, press day, before they left at Twitter. So it was really cool to establish relationships with those folks. And then, of course, a few weeks later, the icing on the cake was was them winning uh, the World Cup. Um, it felt like we played a role in, in that process because we, we, um, we got to send them off. So that was just something that was fulfilling. It was cool. Um, we... We want to be really deliberate about providing opportunities for underserved and, and underdistributed sports properties and, and, and communities on our platform to to get attention, to get share of mind, and, and women's sports is certainly one of those. So to have to have played a role, a small role, in uh, in their journey was something that that felt really special. So so that was streamed live on Twitter. So the, the press conference occurred at Twitter New York, and uh-huh. um, it was streamed, and we obviously had content captures here and, right. and, and the whole nine and different outlets. For, uh, something that's, for something like that or even just a, another live show or whether it's a, a live broadcast of a, of a high school football game or one of the second screen NBA shows, for something that's live video on Twitter, what's, what's successful in terms of time spent? It, uh, it, 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 there's so many different variables, right? Like 
Um, for example, we had a show with The Ringer that aired immediately after each episode of, of, of Game of Thrones, and it was called Talking Thrones. And it was one of the, the, um, the most heralded programs that we've had, simply because um, the consumption was high and uh, brands were really, really, really interested in it. However, like a, a live WNBA game may have a, a smaller audience, but they may stick around watching the game longer than that of uh, a live game for another property, right? So it really varies. Sometimes there are brands that that are aligned with, with the game as well. So sometimes there's brand promotion involved. Um, so there isn't necessarily a, a, a benchmark or a baseline based on how variable the, the properties are. It's kind of one of those things when you know, you know. Like we, we work with these properties pretty closely, and they typically have their own benchmarks that they measure up against, and, and we try to help them ladder up to those insights or, or those data points that are important to them. So, TJ, we, we have one final uh, question that we always ask, a catch-and-shoot question. We can get to that in a yeah. moment. But I did want to say before we let you go, I mean, you came in with a class, by the way, just so people know. Abby Wainer, who was a basketball player at Duke, she went on to play, get drafted in the WNBA. Michael mm-hmm. Kelly got into uh, television production. This was his intern class. Sophia Minert, superstar TV person, personality in, in Milwaukee, and Kyle Godwin, obviously, his – TJ and I, a friend of ours who's, who's um, won some um, Emmy Awards and, and really had a successful business of his own on, in the, on the production side. Um, I just wanted to say how proud I am of you, man, like, that, like to see what you've done and the influence you're making now being one of the most influential people in all of sports. And I think even though people don't realize that, they know you on Twitter at TJ, but they don't know the impact that you've had and the kind of person you are. So I just wanted to say, you know, how proud I am of you, and uh, this is a good platform to do it. Man, I appreciate I appreciate that, man. Uh, it's uh, it, it certainly doesn't happen without without folks like you um, playing uh, an important role in that. So we got more work to do, though, man. And I'm hoping that uh, this is just the beginning of of all of us collectively doing really dope stuff in the industry. There you go. Well, you're going to be able to promote this podcast on on Twitter. We can put this right at the top on every uh, <laughs> on every opportunity that you get. Uh, <laughs> Noah, you had a question for for TJ. Yeah, you want to let, let's close with let's close with catch and shoot. So we ask everyone from George Carl, Larry Brown, Byron Scott. We ask them game seven situation, mm. catch and shoot situation, mm. game on the line. Who do you want taking that final shot? but we'll, we'll cater it to Twitter. So you want one NBA player to compose a tweet that shuts down the conversation. Who are you yep. going to? Yeah, so I'm going to answer both. I'm going to answer the player one and the tweet one. Uh, the first one, the player one, um, I'm, I'm going to be a bit, a bit self-serving here. Hakeem Olajuwon is my favorite player of all time. He also I thought you were going to say Nick Cannon Medley or something. <laughs> or, or Michael or Michael Oluwakandi. Nah, that oh, we're going to... some, some 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 random Maryland player. <laughs> nah, so we're going we're going um, Hakeem Olajuwon. Nigerian, like, give, Nigerian. Yeah. Give, give me the dream shake, baby, to end this game out, Game Seven. That's how we're going to end this thing out in style. 
So Keen the Dream for for uh for, for, for that question. To compose a tweet. Woo, it's a good one. Uh I'm gonna pick someone from the NBA. The easy answer would be to go with LeBron because he's really good on Twitter and it's gonna do numbers. I'll tell you who is really, really good at Twitter. There's a young crew of the Donovan Mitchells, the Kyle Kuzmas, Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum's that are really good. But um the 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 NBA Twitter most improved player in the league might be Spencer Dinwiddie. He is fantastic on Twitter. So I'm giving I'm giving Spencer the keys to to compose this tweet and to to do numbers on on our service. Wow. What hey, TJ? Before I actually let you go, we always end it with that. But what's what do you find to be the most annoying thing about NBA Twitter? <laughs> uh, it's the best and the worst thing, man. It, it's the good with the best. Like some of the takes are just absolutely insane, man. Yeah. Yes. I, I I realize that basketball fans all have perspectives and POVs, and and we're all entitled to that. Um, where I get slightly offended is if the take is just trash, or if um, if if there's language that happens to be like offensive or or rude or just you know like unnecessary that's where i'm like come on man you can have an opinion without calling the guy an idiot or calling the guy a name so that's where that's where i get annoyed sometimes with nba twitter when it's like such and such sucks man i'm like yo he's been in the league for 10 plus years he's, he's doing quite all right with himself you know meanwhile you you you've got a minimum wage gig sometimes so this is a uh, Carmelo response that he's giving right now. I don't think you realize that he's defending Carmelo right now and his place on the all NBA decade team. That's what he's doing right now. So. This sounds very much like LeBron at the podium when he said, you know, those people are just going to go back to their, to their <laughs> 95 job. I thought, I'm, I'm a man way, of the I, people, guy. I'm a man of the people. I'm a man of the people. Don't listen to my know, words. We know. I thought you were gonna. <laughs> I thought you were gonna go with uh, one word quote tweets, which is a big, big no no for uh, Noah and I. When people just give the nice and then give the quote tweet because they they want to build their own brand as opposed to just retweeting it, that's a right. big one of ours. Or, or, or initially, early on, it was this. Like, all right. I'll just <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you, my media, my like the companies I work with hate that too. Like, I, or or if there's imagery within within a tweet, as opposed to retweeting the original tweet that you that you got the the info from, yeah, your own tweet and then taking that content, but then doing the fake courtesy of I got this from at Naismith Lives. Like, yo, you could have just given me the engagement. You could have given me the retweet. I'd rather right. take a quote. Hold on, hold on. I'd rather take that, that quote tweet. I'd rather take that quote tweet actually than you creating your own tweet, copying and pasting or using whatever, and then attributing me in the tweet copy. I'd rather take the the one word quote tweet than that. I'm so glad you said so, this. Have you ever talked to Bleacher Report about this? I have great relationships with publishers all over the, the the marketplace, and they all have their own respective content publishing strategies that that I can't alter. Um, yeah. So I uh, I Bleacher Report is one of one of many properties that I, yeah. that I have a relationship with. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm uh, but I'm right there with you, TJ. <laughs> I I, I, pre- I appreciate it. I know Adam does, and um, and he he spoke 
so highly of you for so long. And the fact that it took you guys 10 years to get anything done together, I'm just honored to be a part of it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible without you. So thanks for getting them in shape, man. I appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it again next week. Appreciate you, TJ. All right, thanks. Let's get some buckets. I'm so glad the conversation went that way at the end with TJ and (laughs) about the the attribution and that kind of thing. Because look, there's no you can't police everything on Twitter, and you can't you can't police social media unless it's you know you know something that's going to lead to an actual crime. But some of that stuff that Bleacher does, and 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 you know, not just Bleacher Report, but others do. It's uh, that is that's maddening. But TJ was excellent as expected, and and I, I appreciate you facilitating that. Yeah, he really is uh, one of the good guys, you know. Um, and for just good I, guys end up in good positions. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 nothing better, and it's the the same reason I, I've been pushing been pushing always for for you and and your success and and just but friends in general when you see people that that work their tails off and um are good people and i mean he's legit he's there's um he is who he is that same person that we just talked to is the same guy if you if you met him on the street he'd be the same same exact way and uh he's always been that way and so that's why i'm i'm really happy for him and and the success he's had and i don't think people realize just you know kind of pull i mean this guy is at wimbledon he's you know, talked about it. He was over in France for that, that women's world cup. And, you know, there's athletes reaching out to him all the time. You check out his Twitter feed at TJ. I mean, who's got a better feed than that at TJ. TJ a Y DJ a Y. Yes. And, yeah. and, uh, but you know, you just see all the people that he influences. And, and so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. And, and on that point, it was interesting though, to wrap this whole thing around from, from where we were in the beginning of this podcast with the, the all decade team, uh, I saw it's funny sometimes different sites will will take credit for other people's work and then sometimes they don't want to. I saw with Complex, they retweeted the all well, put it in their own words. Here are the all decade teams. Really? And they started getting crushed by people saying, yeah, Complex, yeah, how could yeah. you leave Kobe on the yeah, third team? Yeah, da, da, yeah. And then Complex responds with, whoa, 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 we said early on, this wasn't our team. Yeah. This, this was, uh, you know, an NBA panel of writers. We didn't put this together. So when it doesn't go your way, sometimes you uh, quickly back out of the attribution phase of the uh, sure. conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, let's make sure everybody checks out all the podcasts here on the Pure Hoops Media Podcast Network. That is the Mike Wise Show. He's got an hour with Mavericks head coach and one of the great coaches in NBA history, Rick Carlisle, future Hall of Famer. Also, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt. And also the Pure Hoops Podcast with Eric Newman and NBA champion BJ Armstrong. I want to close with Don Banks, who is a longtime NFL writer, wrote for St. Petersburg Times for a long time, was up in Minneapolis covering the Vikings. He covered the Bucks in St. Petersburg where he grew up. Spent, I think, a decade and a half at Sports Illustrated. And I met Don through Sam Farmer, who's the longtime NFL writer for the LA Times, who went into the Hall of Fame this week out in Canton over the weekend. And so Don and, and Sam are extremely close friends and I met them at the I met Don through Sam at the Super Bowl in Indianapolis a number of years ago when that's the second time the Giants beat the Patriots and so on Saturday 
Don was, and, and Don actually had just gotten another job working at the Las Vegas paper to cover the Raiders. He was going to be back being a beat writer. So about three years ago, two, three years ago, I would spend, I spent every, or once or twice a week during the season for a company I used to work for. And Don and I would do videos together, NFL videos, and we would just, and we'd chat. And so Sam Farmer and the Hall of Fame class went in Saturday night. Don was there and then didn't wake up and died in his sleep. And it is, you know, I, I, I mean, I knew Don a little bit, not certainly not as, not as much as um, folks like Peter King and, and Sam Farmer who wrote such lovely tributes and Jenny Francis also, but it, it was just, when I, when I saw the news, it was just an absolute gut punch. Um, wind completely taken out. Uh, his wife, Alyssa, and, and they've got two boys. At, fi- at 56 years old to be, you know, the night before celebrating the Hall of Fame and see all these different writers talking about what, how Don was <laughs> saying, I'm back, baby, because he was going to be covering a team is as shocking and stunning of, of news as um, as I've seen in a long time. To see that news of, of Don passing away at the age of 56 when he was just about to start another life of his chapter was just is just absolutely gut-wrenching. It's, I, I keep seeing things. I did not know Don Banks, but I keep seeing things uh, online about how he was someone everyone liked. And as, as we know in this, this media business, um, it's, it's a rarity, you know, to find someone like that. Um, and everyone has just given such high praise and obviously you knew him. Um, yeah. Our thoughts go out yeah. to, uh, to him and his family. Yeah. And if, you know, if it teaches you anything, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to the, it really puts things in perspective because if you need death and tragedy to put things in yes. perspective, then, then you need to be looking in the mirror more often. But you know, you see so many nice things mentioned publicly about people when when they die or they lose a job or something like that. If you know someone well, or even just even just a little bit, you have a re- you have a relationship with them. Send them a note any random day, any given day, just to say hello or to thank them or to let them know that you're thinking about them. It's not weird at all to do that. Um, and the same thing goes for. And I know this is a bit of a soapbox here, but like when you tell somebody, like if so-and-so is talking to somebody or they're going to see somebody and you say, well, tell that person, oh, yeah, he's great. Tell him I said hello. You know what? Do it yourself. Like, sure, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll say hello. But if if you really think that highly of that person and that person knows you, just send them a text. Say, hey, man, been a while. Just thinking about you. Hope you're doing all right. Why not? Well, this has become the praise podcast because you know we were we were just talking to my my good longtime friend TJ and you know you guys had a lot of stuff good stuff to say about well he had a lot of good stuff to say about me I I you know that's that's who you are Noah and for people that don't know you it's interesting because that's exactly who you are you're the kind of guy that I'll randomly just be you know spending an afternoon hanging out with the kids and then all of a sudden I get this text hey how's it going how's your how's your daughter feeling how's your son doing you know and uh, that it goes a long way so i appreciate that that you don't just preach that but but you live that and uh you know our honestly our our producers are the, the the yeah and our producers are the same way you know um 
good people. And we've all been lucky enough to work together on this podcast, Scott Turkin and, and Bruce Bernstein, who we always tease at the end of the show, but they're guys that are, are caring guys. And um, yeah, again, it's good to see good things happen to good people. And it's, it's a shame when bad things happen to good people. All right, we're both TV people. It's a seamless transition into, is, is there anything that's, uh, that's been entertaining you? <laughs> I, no, yeah, I, I've been on vacation. I haven't gotten to watch anything. No, I haven't gotten to see anything. Um, so I've really sort of been unplugged in a, in a good way. Has so. you or anything? Uh, have you lost sunglasses? My my son is still um, on his. He now knows that he's on this like cursing um, kick now that he can not not cursing, but um, you know he can he can be rude. He's he's been fine though. He's he's. Look, it's two and a half right now. It's it's the growing pains. He's hasn't lost my sunglasses, Good. hasn't um, cursed too often. But it's actually, you know, what's been cool about this trip is that because we've been going away, we've been gone for a little while. Like when we're away from family, we can then recognize the milestones of how much he's grown since the last time he saw them. Right. And I don't just mean physically, but just emotionally in terms of maturity. And that part's been. Uh, been really cool to see like him growing up and that maturation process has been been pretty awesome so that's i guess the most entertaining thing i've seen this week what about for you mm, yeah i don't, I don't think i have much uh i've been watching <laughs> uh i've been watching the season the comedians and cars getting coffee i think it's i think it's been okay the, the jamie fox one i don't think i talked about it last time the jamie fox one was terrific his impressions especially of Chappelle, are, are spot on that's been by far the best one the Ricky Gervais one, part one, was better than part two. My wife's watching Stranger Things, which, oh, which yeah. I haven't seen. Oh, I, I'm now, I've made it through five seasons of New Girl. That's oh. entertaining. Yep. Where so are we got, at in New Girl? Have we had two, some I've, weird developments with the show? Well, it's all, every episode's weird, but it's funny. I laugh out loud every time. So I've fi- I'm five seasons through, and I've got uh, two more. I got my stadium college football schedule. My first game for stadium is um, at UNLV Saturday, September 7th. Looking forward to that. Um, I think that's as close as I'll be to San Francisco, close to this, to the Stanko family. Um, Yeah, that's, uh, that's what's entertaining. Well, well, I'll be sure to be tuning in on September 7th. And uh, Noah, as always, we got to thank the, the producers, as I just mentioned, Bruce Bernstein, Scott Turkin, great guys, Ben Wolfen, who edits the podcast, and everyone else with the Pure Hoops Media team. Check out all our other podcasts. And Noah, as always, it's been a blast every week, and I love that this show continues to grow. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Val. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 